Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Why would you think this novel, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, won the Hugo and Nebula Awards? Why is it useful here? What's the basic issue that we might be thinking is relevant to a political science course? Uh, human interactions. Human interaction. There's a lot of deep human interaction. The different types of leadership. Different types of leadership. It certainly is a profile on leadership, isn't it? And different types of leadership. How many people have read some of the other sequels to this? I mean, there's a whole collection of them. Pardon me? Speaker of the Dead. You read that one, and what else? That's it. And that's it. Anyone else read any other? I read Xenophone. I've read the. I've read the original. Yeah. Isn't it Xenocide or something like that? Or Xenocide or Xen- something like something. that. Xenocide. Yeah. I read yeah. that too. Yeah, and then there's a whole bunch of others, including novels dealing with some of the side characters here, like Bean. Uh, people always wanted to know about the rest of the characters. Well, what do you? What else do you see about the novel? It's a very good portrayal of leadership, for sure. Variously defined. Lots of different aspects of leadership show up in in these novels. What else? Control. What do you mean, control? I mean, this idea that, you know, we might be controlled in our actions. Maybe we're, like, guided to a certain way of thinking, a certain way of acting. Maybe not. Maybe not a certain way of acting, but we're we're forced in a way which will maximize our potential. Or because I mean, Ender was. I mean, he wasn't controlled in what he was supposed to do, but he was controlled in the circumstances he was placed in. So interesting. He controlled, and he was controlled. He controlled. Control is a big issue. He was often complaining about it in the novel. Actually, when we get back from spring break, near this second half of the novel he was bitterly complaining about the amount of control in his life but if generals do anything they control so he was also a controller so this is a big issue with control the control of other people other 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 beings control is a this is not one of those novels where you talk about Freedom of thought, freedom of will, freedom to do this. This is not an anarchy novel. This is a control novel. Control, it's a good thing, saying Very good. What else? What else is in this novel that is an issue that relates? It's about genius as well. What's that, Otto? It's about different types and different personifications of genius. Because all three of the wicked children were geniuses in their own right. But they each had defined, like, they each showed in a different way like Ender became was like his circumstances forced him to become a military like Superman he was the unbeatable commander by the end of it and Peter his was more for political type of genius he was able to see the things like happening and figure out how to use them how to twist events in the world and Valentine was more of a social genius he was able to see people see what made them tick and how to Make them do what you wanted. Yeah. So the, the so the three the, the three main characters. I mean, Ender himself, Peter, and uh, 
and his sister, they were, they all did have different roles. Now, say, explain again what major point of the different roles did they have? They were, um, what was the name of the sister again? Was it Valentine. Valerie? Valerie, right? Valentine. Pardon me? Valentine, that's right, Valentine. Valentine and Peter. They, how far have you gotten into the novel? Have you gotten into the novel where f- far enough to the point where they're actually writing columns and mm-hmm. posting them all over the internet? Okay, the which is an interesting thing. If you have enough time to do that, it is possible for somebody anonymously, I suppose, to develop a personality like the Mosthenes and Locke. <laughs> Locke, of course, was uh, Peter's personality, and the Mosthenes is um, Valentine's personality. But the personalities were kids' personalities where they were developing them uh, sort of independent of their own. Now, what else did you say, Adol? That it, that the book also talks, shows the various aspects of various types of genius, even. Like oh, geniuses. Because, like, all three of the Wigan children have you know, genius-level abilities. They're all incredibly smart and everything. Yeah. Like, and a new trigonometry by age the three. So you need a new what? Trigonometry. Math, like maths, that kind of thing. By age C, when like, it, people twice his age were still trying to learn it. Yeah. And like, so then they each developed their genius in a different way. In a different way. Yeah, this is clearly a novel about genius and the development of genius. It's an interesting point you're raising because... Do you get the idea that Orson Scott Card is talking about genius from strictly a genetic point of view, where someone just is a genius, suddenly you have a Napoleon there? No. What is he talking about? Go ahead. Well, they had the fam- the parents have Peter, and when they found out that he was just too mean to carry out to be a commander, they had Valentine, and she was too nice, and so when you keep going through, I mean, if they're all geniuses, then the, it's not just... You know, once in a lifetime somebody comes around, you can make sure that you can plan on having these types of children. Now, they had predispositions. I'm sorry, Adol. It's potential. They have potential. Ender had the potential to be a commander, but like he could have been anything else. It's that they made him do that. Like, Peter had... Like, all three children had, poten- had potential, but the potential was in different ways. So mm-hmm. Possibly, like with the right circumstances, anybody could turn out to be, if not a genius, then like a world leader or somebody, like at the top of some industry or something. Yeah. But it's interesting. Circumstances that make it, and circumstances in this case made them what they were. Yeah, that is interesting. That's a very good point. So we're talking about potential to be great, the potential for genius. (coughs) And I think if I could summarize what you were just saying is that these people could have turned out to be anything else, not just generals, but other things. And I would perhaps suggest that Orson Scott Card is talking about not just the fact that these people have great potential, but he's discussing the process by which genius is developed. So the potential is one thing, but how do you develop it into a genius? So, Adolf, if I was to follow your point... And Rachel's points, I would be saying, well, then, 
is really a novel just not just about genius, but it's about the development of genius. And in a very real sense, it's a development of genius in others. I think by the end of the novel, you'll see that many of his followers, Andrew's followers, became geniuses in their own right, which is why, in fact, you have subsequent novels about Bean and others. They, have, they did their own development. They were influenced by the genius of Ender. The they were go ahead. Their own right, because like they were all like before they even came to the battle school, they were the best of the best. Mm-hmm. But what was their faults? Why were they not Ender? Why, if they were the best of the best, like you say, what was? Ender was like he had for one more potential than they did. What was that potential? He was, he was the best of both worlds. He had that killer instinct that Peter had, but he could also see the good in people. Okay, he yeah. could see the and good in people, but he also had the killer instinct. He Go ahead. relate to the his enemies. Like, yeah. Whenever he says to himself that in the moment, like he um, he totally understands them, he comes to love them. He also has the ability in him then to destroy them, to grind them till they're no longer a threat. Okay, like, he, he has the ability. He did that with Bonzo. He understood them well enough to be able to uh, make to know, sure to love, ever, and destroy. Exactly, he never ever would hurt him ever again. In okay. this case, it was by killing them. Yeah. But it could, like with the buggers, he was able to empathize with the like way the buggers thought. That's why instead of looking for, to the humans for strategy, he started to look to the buggers because he saw that they were you know, there was something there that wasn't human, and he didn't feel quite human anymore. So he decided to create a empathy with them, and like by the very end of the book, they put make one back with him. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's well. We'll we'll actually get to that after after spring break when we get to the end of the book and sort of the full implications of it. Hussein, what were you going to say? Um, like even during with because Peter and um Andrew used to play the buggers and astronauts game. And yes, he was always just beaten up by his brother, but he was always he could always empathize with the buggers because he had to because that was his role in the game. So like, and I think as much as Ender was like the best of both worlds. It helped that his brother and sister were there. Like, if it was just by himself, he would not have been as... So, so geniuses need support personnel. They exactly. Need, they like need to have a social setting. They need to have context, social context. Like, even though Peter was this destructive influence, but he, like, helped... I remember they were talking about how Ender was able to, like, mask his emotions really well. No one could ever, no one could ever see through him because he was so used to trying to hide it from Peter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, if he didn't have that role... Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to say role model, but that character in his life then he might have maybe struggled maybe Peter was like that Peter like showed him how hard life could be and when he was exposed to these problems he was ready for it I think you could take that further and not just say like it's just with geniuses that they have to rely on other people I think people in general have to rely on others sometimes for like that support system yeah that the we are social humans we are humans and that we, we we do depend on others somewhat in fact by the end of the novel, it becomes quite clear. It's a little. It's a, it's the issue of dependency that drives Ender forward um, to complete the mission. But the dependency on others. Now, you were talking about this issue of genius, but one thing I'd like to push a little bit more: how much is Orson Scott Card really talking about the discovery of a genius? versus the development of genius qualities in everyone, in other people. 
is he really talking about isolated people that are separate from ourselves that we can look at like in a movie theater or is he talking about something some processes that are more general to all of us is Ender really different from us so that we really can't learn anything from him that's relevant to us or is he somehow relevant to us all of us similar to us like there are points with him that you can empathize with but at the same time uh, I don't think that like he's saying that genius development in everybody I think about everybody has potential which requires the certain circumstances to bring out which combat the potential thing but like you previously said that all of Ender's subordinates were genius by the end of geniuses in their own right like they were all incredible like they were all pushed to the limits they were all brought to the peak of military perfection but to be like they weren't a genius on the level of the wicked children what what was what was the if you had to isolate force yourself to choose one particular quality that was unique for Ender that made him able to do what he did. What was that quality? It was, I think, his um, ability to think outside the box. Outside of the box. Because everything he did was unique. He broke, like even like the game, the Giants drink. No one ever thought of just attacking, attacking the Giant. And even in when he was fighting the battles, he his ideas were he just found a way to get things done by thinking outside the box. He accomplished things that they just didn't think was possible. And that's yeah. a that's a mark of a military genius, someone who can What were improvise. the flaws? What were the flaws of the way other people thought that made them incapable of thinking outside the box to coming up with a new element? And for example, in the first game you played, the like one where you had the little lights that you laid traps with and everything. Uh-huh. Everybody left their minds being like they saw how the computer played and tried to emulate that which they couldn't do because the computer was faster than they were ever going to be. But Ender, on the other hand, didn't look at that. He looked at how the people played and saw ways to beat them, not a way to be like the computer. And the other people had never seen that. They couldn't, like, the patterns they developed couldn't conquer them. Yeah, now you said an interesting word. The pattern, the pattern that they developed couldn't cope with this new element. The pattern. That's an interesting word. What do you think about the concept of the word pattern? What was different with Ender with respect to the word pattern? He never kept the same. He kept changing ways, especially as a commander in battle school. He, When they were thrown something like against the two armies, he decided to go back to the old school like formation things. So yeah. He just kept changing what he did. Kept and changing kept things. kept everybody on their toes. Yeah. You know, there's a good real-world analogy that we could make Look at Steve Jobs and Apple Computer. Steve Jobs has uh, fully recovered, my understanding, from pancreatic cancer. But when he had that bout of cancer, he caused a bit of a stir in Apple's executives, other executives, the board. And they started meeting and saying, what are we going to do in a post-Steve Jobs world? And what, what's really unusual about Apple Computer? If you, think of, if you think of Microsoft versus Apple, my son sort of summarized it the other day. He came up to me and said, Dad, 
how come Apple comes up with something every two weeks, a new thing every two weeks, and Microsoft comes up with something only every few years, a new thing every few years. And I said, that's the basic thing that drives the two, com- that's the real difference between the two. Apple is constantly pushing the, pushing the edge. Like, for example, Windows is now slowly but surely moving in the direction of 64-bit computing something that Apple's been doing for a very long time. And I used to do my scientific computing on an old Macintosh Quadra back in the old days because I was I, uh, using a language that essentially doesn't exist anymore, Pascal. And I had to do it on an Apple because they were on a 32-bit system. And for years, the Windows was on a 8-bit system. And it just I mean, you literally couldn't write a matrix big enough to do scientific computing reasonably. It couldn't hold enough information in its brain. See, I had to use a 32-bit computer. And then finally, Windows went to a 32-bit operating system. And very soon after that, uh, actually, it took a while for Apple to rehire Steve Jobs. And then when they rehired Steve Jobs, they were actually a little nervous about him, and they didn't... They made him acting chief executive officer for the longest time, the acting head. And the one thing that they were so concerned about and is when, when, when they hired him again, they were a little concerned about his volatility in the sense that he was always coming up with new ideas, shaking, shaking the way people thought. And in corporate environments, they, they lust after patterns, successful patterns. And Steve Jobs lusts after breaking those patterns. And they were just nervous about him. They didn't feel comfortable with him. And the person they had in before him was trying, to, again, to think in a more corporate way, but the company was diving. The company was dying. It was just not capable of... It was going to go into extinguish. It was going to become extinct. And so it was a desperate move they brought Steve Jobs back. But for years, they didn't just say, okay, he's head of the company. He's, he's acting head of the company. They, he made them nervous. And then one innovation started after the next. First, he brought the, the new operating system in that he had developed for his own computer, his, his other new company, the next computer company. And then he, the Unix-based system in, and then he brought one innovation after the next from latches on how to open up a computer door, silly things, to, you know, 64-bit operating systems, to new way of doing things. And, and now, re- just recently, Intel has jumped onto Macs. They started making Macs with Intel processors. Yeah. He, he, which, and were my, which were Microsoft's... He wasn't getting what yeah. he needed. He wasn't... Strong for I know. He wasn't getting what he needed from IBM chips and Motorola chips, and then he just said, to heck with it. Switch over to... Switch over to Intel. Make a complete... Meaning he's willing to make radical departures to get where he wants to go, which is the future. Out of the box. Now, if you look at Microsoft, everything is planned. Everything is corporate. Everything is thought out. Microsoft could have been some, like, juggernaut take. Pardon me? Microsoft been caught up in some, like, now huge bureaucratic juggernaut. Is it juggernaut? Um, like, Microsoft is... Despite Apple's like up and comingness, Microsoft's still the largest computer firm. Yeah, yeah. Firm it's like a lumbering giant. Yeah. Well, they have the two. They have the two cash cows of the Office Suite, Microsoft Word, and so on, and and then they have the operating system. Those two cash cows, and so 
you know, given the fact that they ha- dominate the environment so much, they don't have the they don't have the real competitive need to to renovate but or to innovate. If you think about it, it's it's kind of like the book in that Apple is always innovating, right? And the thing is that you know they're worried about Steve Jobs being volatile and upsetting their corporate their corporate you know structure. But at the same time, the other thing they had to worry about was that he might not have any new ideas. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna base a company's uh, a, a company's income basically on one man's new ideas, or, or one man's ability to push or other one people to come up to with new ideas, ideas, you know, one man's ability to motivate, one man's ability yeah. to create, one man's ability to do something. It's not corporate. It, it's not corporate, but you get to the same thing here. Is it you know the the generals were worried that you know they were pushing Ender too far. Right, they were pushing yeah. him so far that now, he wasn't going to be able to. Now this is a very interesting point you're asking, you're raising because this is saying. This is saying, A, Steve Jobs isn't the classic corporate approach, which is incremental change, but it's radical new paradigm shifts as fast as you can bring them in. I mean, he did the same thing with Pixar. Uh, It it goes on and on. But at the same time, Apple Computing Company, the, the corporation, eventually realized that without this level of innovation, it was going to die, so that they needed it. And then when Steve Jobs got pancreatic cancer, Finally, after all these years, they finally fessed up and said, we're dead. If we, <laughs> if we don't have some way to produce another Ender, if we don't have some way to shake us up, if we don't have another Steve Jobs, how are we going to compete against the behemoth, Microsoft? It was only Steve Jobs' ability to literally think out of the box, to constantly go where no one's gone before, and to push the edge. And if you think about it, there's so many innovations that you know people the people just take for granted they don't even think about but i mean you know like uh, your standard pc has a motherboard that's you know probably a, a foot by you know nine or ten inches and it's got all these cards on it and stuff and then you know mac just came out with this little mac mini that's about four inches tall I know, I know. and you know six inches wide on a side and the thing you know will run circles around any pc out there and i mean it's just it's innovations like that. It's not even necessarily new technology. It's just like let's make this smaller. It doesn't yeah. need to be this big. And it's constantly just, changing, and constantly it's just, adapting. It's something that Microsoft doesn't do. And actually, now Apple used to be a computing company. Now it's become a a uh, consumer products company. I mean, with the iPods and yeah. everything else, it's. And Microsoft went the same way with the Xbox. Pardon me. Microsoft went the same way with the Xbox. Yeah, Microsoft went that way with the. But when Xbox you think about it, it's extent. not actually the Xbox isn't really an innovation. I mean, people have been making gaming platforms forever. Yeah, it Xbox wasn't new. It wasn't new. In fact, the, the PlayStation, PlayStation change. 2. It was a genius idea. The Nintendo stuff. Yeah, there was no genius. There was no genius there. It was a great it was, idea. It was the moving Xbox into the awesome. market. It was moving into the right. market, but it not, did, not, but not, not genius, defining it was a new smart market. move. It was a genius I mean, it was, it was nothing new because, you know, PlayStation was doing oh, the same thing. Oh, it wasn't anything new, but it was a great move. I mean, it was a great move on the part of Microsoft. Why is this an important book, then, with regard to what we've been just talking about, for us to talk about in this class? What has it been the dominant theme of the reason I teach this class? To get people to come up with new ideas. Yeah, exactly. To get people to think out of the box to come up with new ideas. Because the social sciences is dead. We have some ideas, we have some good things that are coming along, but the process is incremental and slow. And in order for people to change... Pardon me? You need a social science ender. You need a social science ender. That's exactly right. And where are you going to get them? From people like you. You're going to get them from people who think out of the box, who think differently, to come up with new ideas and stick them out there and say, 
this is really how the universe works. It's not the way everyone else was thinking. If you go to a political science convention, you will see thousands, I mean, 5,000 at a drop, easy, political scientists. And just go through all of the papers that they're, that they're doing. You're talking about 5,000 papers at a major convention. And talk about pothole fillers. What's a pothole filler? Somebody else built a road. A pothole filler is, hey, there's a little hole in the ground, and they're patching it. The papers just aren't really relevant. Every once in a while, a big one will come through. The one I talked about la uh, last time, about the genetic connection with voting, that was a major road. That was a major one. That was a huge one. And that will have a big implication 10, 20 years down the line. There have been great political scientists who have paved new territories, completely new territories. William Riker did amazing stuff with regard to rational choice theory, social choice theory, coming up with ideas about the minimum winning coalition, making it sense to people. You had other people, Axelrod, in that in the same sense of social choice, rational choice type of thinking. In systems modeling, you had people coming that were totally different. People. Herb Simon, you had uh, James Coleman, you had Bill Mc, uh, William McPhee, you had people like John Sprague uh, bringing a lot of that mathematical, sociological system stuff into political science. You had major thinkers. They are far and few between. And right now, right this very second, as we speak, there aren't many enders out there. There aren't many people sh going out of the box. They're talking about really peripheral issues. Actually, some of the issues are very important, but the way they're talking about it is old patterns. And as you can see, is the world getting any better? Are we coming up with any solutions as political scientists that are going to solve the major problems? We're ending, entering into a world that's getting worse and worse, and there's less and less understanding about it. So, you know, that's why it's important for you to learn how to think out of the box. It's what the uh, um, what did the what did the guru uh, queen say to the guru that was going out in in the last novel? That we, in, in, actually, it wasn't the last one. It was the novel we were talking about, the uplift war. They said, "Go out there and save us." <laughs> it's a very real sense. We're talking to you, the younger generation, is saying, "We need a lot more Enders. We need a lot more Steve Jobs. We need a lot more people out there that think out of the box." Let's go over to page. Actually, you know, it's a very interesting thing. We have an introduction that's very useful with Orson Scott Card uh, wrote uh, literally about the process and what he was aiming at. And he has a couple interesting paragraphs that are useful for us. And let's go to the introduction, page 20. Now this is XX in the introduction because they use Roman numerals for the introduction. Paging, so this is XX, page 20, okay? And let's go to that. You don't have... Okay, you'll bring it next time, though, right? Yeah. Okay. And let's look at the paragraph that starts with the nasty side of myself. So this is Orson Scott Card talking about himself. The nasty side of myself wanted to answer that guidance counselor by saying, the only reason you don't think children talk this way is because you know better than to talk this way they know better than to talk this way in front of you. Now, this is the section that I really wanted to um, focus on. 
But the truer answer is that Ender's game asserts the personhood of children and those who are used to thinking of children in another way, especially those whose whole career is based on that, are going to find that are going to find Ender's game a very unpleasant place to live. Children are perpetual, self-renewing underclass, helpless to escape from the decisions of adults until they become adults themselves. And Ender's Game, seen in that context, might even be a sort of revolutionary tract. What's he talking about? He's clearly talking about a major shift. What's that, Adolf? The children of people can be just as mature as adults. That they can be as mature as us. Well, I'm not sure. Is he saying that? He's saying that like people tend to think of children as like the uh, smaller people who you take care of, who what does he say? Like don't aren't adults yet. They're ad- they're future adults. But he's saying that they can think like uh, as good as they can be as good as you right now. So yeah, they're not as good as you in some way, and they're not as full as you. I think what you mean by mature. Uh, in a way you want to say you don't, you don't want to use the word they're not as mature as us because in fact they're not as mature as adults but I think Orson Scott Card is saying something broader which is it does address everything you were saying and he's using the word personhood that they are equal in some way not necessarily in maturity but in some way as people and that's what you're saying that this people component is not is not fully recognized in many because perhaps they are different from adults. They're yeah. treated as non-people. Go ahead. But I think children, the one advantage, I mean, that or Scott or Scott Carr is talking about is that they're like yet to be molded. They're not corrupted. They're innocent. They're, they they can have take, that aspect. Because, yes. I mean, a, when you're a child, you take everything in for the first time. You're learning about the world. When you're an adult, you see, it seems uh, some adults think they've known they've been exposed to everything they've been exposed to but they're corrupted they don't they no longer have that and I think that's one reason why Andrew was so he was able to think outside the box because he was everything was for the first time he was able mm. to just think mm. but when we become older we just feel restricted and we no longer are we have no longer have this like optimism this shock optim- yeah that's a good point well, what does he also mean by this though Children are a perpetual self-renewing underclass, helpless to escape from the decisions of adults until they become adults themselves. Well, the children have no decision-making, uh, no decision-making responsibility. Not that they're not capable, but they have no decision-making responsibility from adults. And the thing is that it's not like it's not like they're gonna, you know, die out or go away. I mean, people keep having children, and the children keep being in this. You know, there's this age range when you're a child. And during that age range, you're continually under the thumb of adults. And so, you know, he's saying that that's always going to be there. It's continually renewing. People keep having children. Would, would you like the word, could I insert the word vulnerability in there? In relation to the children? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're vulnerable to adult control, I guess. Do you think that's what he's talking about? I personally interpret it as, like, children have the ability to go against like the traditional ways because when you're an adult mm-hmm. you're kind of scared to break out of the society if you've yeah. been doing it for several years yeah. since children are so young they have that ability to have the potential as we've been saying to think differently and not like well they can't obviously go that way until they become adults themselves 
but they've realized that's what they need to do and instead of going the traditional path they go the other path and that's like when you get like the enders and stuff in the world that kind of makes sense I don't know ah I see mm-hmm. that's interesting um during this process where they're making that pathway choices the pathway development are they capable independent or are they vulnerable they're vulnerable they're vulnerable I think that's what he's really saying here during that vulnerability stage adults are making these decisions right Mm -hmm. while you're talking about them making these pathways well if there aren't a lot of enders out there some of it may be genetic but what might also be the reason why there are so few enders? There is a time period that everyone goes through when they're a child, when they're vulnerable to the decisions of adults. And what are adults? I just told you about thousands of political scientists that meet at these conventions, pothole fillers. They're patterned people. They're people that follow patterns. It has widely been complained that people, scientists, have one new idea in their whole life. They're required to have one new idea because they have to get a dissertation published or they don't get their doctorate. So they're pushed, and usually that's an incremental shift on somebody else's idea, an incremental change. And then if you read their books, book after book after book, and maybe they write 20, you see so often that each book is a new application, a reapplica- a new and a reapplication of that same old idea they had when they were graduate students, that they really came up with one new idea in their entire life. Adults are patterned people by large amounts. What made them patterned? There was something that happened earlier on because every adult was once a child and they were vulnerable at one point. I think what Orson Scott Card may be talking about, you might want to think about whether he's talking about this, is whether in that period of vulnerability they lost the ability to be an ender. Maybe it's the risk factor. Once you become an adult, you can't think or take the risk that you could when you were a child because if you're an adult and you start thinking outside the box and it's, you're unsuccessful because I mean, people just refuse to listen to you, then, you know, you might lose your job, you might be uh, unable to support your family. But if you're a kid, you can do whatever you want. I mean, we always say, oh, it's, it's just he's just a kid, you can't get mad at him. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. that's what they lose, that they lose the ability to take risks because once you become an adult, you have responsibilities. When you're a child, you have no responsibilities. You can do whatever you want, think about anything you want, pursue anything you want. Your imagination can run wild. But when you're an adult, you're like... Oh, you know, I have, actually have responsibilities. I can't just run crazy and do whatever I want. You know, Maybe that's what... It's an interesting thing you're raising. It's an interesting point. You know, I look at my son and I look at other children. And you know what I see about them? He's got a new... He went down to a Hawks game the other day. And he's got a new, base, he's got a new baseball cap that says Hawks on it. He sits at his computer... And he bops around like this on his seat, you know, moving his arms and his legs. And he takes the baseball cap and he puts it backwards, you know, so that the cap is facing backwards. And he looks up at his mom and makes funny faces. At the same time, he's typing stuff out, multitasking and all, right? Plugging in his iPod to make sure it's recharging. And then coming up with trying something new with Excel at the same time. Acting goofy at the same time doing some serious stuff, all thrown together. 
What happens when you get to be 20s and 30s? You don't do that anymore. Why not? That's a good question. What stopped it? Is it because you simply grew a larger brain size? Because society is like, you get more and more affected by society. You get more and more? Affected by society. Like the pressure to More and more affected by society. Good. People are scared of what other people think. Scared of what other people think. And then scared to make the chances, to take those chances. What's the difference between Steve Jobs? He's not afraid to lose everything. To lose everything. In fact, when he originally got sacked from Apple back in the old days, he took his $107 million or however much it was and invested it in this company that wasn't doing very well called Pixar. <laughs> he took the whole thing and reinvested it. He could have lost it all. Okay? And then now there's discussions of Apple, uh, Pixar actually merging with Disney. Again? Pardon me? Again. Did they already? Did, they did they were already, already with Disney, but then. No, no, no. And now it's a big, a big merge. Oh. Like, like merging, merging. Not just distributing Pixar films, but it's like merging, merging. Because Disney's run into the problem. They, they have patterns, and they can't get out of the patterns. And they said we need somebody like Jobs and Pixar to do this. And then somebody in the New York Times was quoted <coughs> as saying. Well, this is the, clearly the time for Steve Jobs, to t- Steve Jobs to take a victory lap. He's really accomplished what hardly anyone could do. Take a victory lap around the field and say, yeah, I've done it. And I said, what a jerk. That person doesn't understand Steve Jobs at all. The last thing Steve Jobs is ever going to do to the end of his life, probably, is take a victory lap. If, if he actually does do a major merger with Disney, he's likely to churn up the entire place. The whole place will be a volcano. <laughs> no victory lap. He'll nuke the place and come out with a completely new product, and it'll be a great success. But the point is, that's what you expect from Ender. There's no victory lap at the end. This is path-breaking stuff constantly. If someone is in their middle age and they're patterned, something happened to drill that creativity out of them. Now, with Ender, it was a matter of the human survivability. The planet Earth had been attacked, actually. The humans had been attacked by the buggers. Humans realized they were going to die, all of them. Just like Apple Computer realized it was going to die, all of them, unless... They had an ender. So they brought Steve Jobs back in. <laughs> he, t- he did miracles twice. He created Apple. Then he recreated Pixar. And they said they need that type of talent. But they were still scared of him, so they sort of made him acting chief. Well, the point is that when you're faced between a rock and a hard place and you're going to die, you then ultimately take chances. Sometimes, most people, only then. That's why graduate students, that's why graduate students come up with one new idea. And then after that, they get tenure, they get a job, they get tenure, and the new ideas stop. They're not faced with the survivability question. Humanity was faced with survivability. And so they said, we're going to get a Steve Jobs. We're going to get an ender. We're going to have to do it. Did And they realized the issue of patterns. The question I leave you is, did they protect ender? What did, Steve, what did Orson Scott Card just say? The children are vulnerable. Well, Ender was vulnerable. Did they protect him? No, mm, kind of, but they knew that they couldn't because the more they like exposed them, the stronger he got. 
most and they couldn't protect him because like they keep saying at the very end he's he's holding the entire fate of the human world in his hands yeah he's holding mm-hmm. so he knew they knew that they couldn't risk him falling into pattern thought they couldn't risk him thinking that an adult will come and rescue me if I do like get in, get in trouble because yeah that someone will rescue him actually I don't know if you've gotten all to it but there's a part in here where uh what is there? There's a there's a brute guy. What is it? Bonzo or something Bonzo, like that? Bonzo. Get they get he gets into a fight and Bonzo's a much bigger kid and he's gonna you know just about kill him. And Ender does kill him. Ender ends up killing Bonzo and they let it happen and no one came to his rescue even though the authorities had it all on video when we're watching it with holding with you know with bated breath the entire time. They said they he has to know that no one will rescue him. We need somebody who thinks out of the box because we're going to die <laughs> if someone doesn't think that way. We need a, a, that type of a general. Well, that type of thinking that you're up against the world and nobody's going to rescue you is very hard because we are so surrounded by rules, rules of survivability that buffer our, our, our interaction with the real world. We learn to depend on these rules so much that we become incapable, impotent to thinking differently, to coming up with new things, to changing the world in fundamental ways. So with Orson Scott Card, he's raising perhaps the most profound issue that faces all of us, which is how not to die when we're young and to be dead walking around when we're old. Because death, from this perspective, is defined as patterned thought. Makes you actually think back against some old biblical stuff and all types of religions, including things about saying, you know, you got to be like the children. <laughs> and the reality is, the children are. What's that? They focus on getting pattern thought. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Mm. And, but what about the revolutionaries? What about Buddha? What about Muhammad? What about Jesus? What about all of those people? What did they do? They broke the pattern thought, and then pattern thought reestablished itself yeah. afterwards. They're in. Yeah. Okay, now look, we're going off on spring break, so I will see you all in, what, 10 days?